You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of John. Like you see, we've entitled this series, The Gospel of John, That You May Believe. And the reason for that is because John has told us the reason for writing this book. He hasn't left, us, left it open to guess. He tells us the reason he wrote this book is so that you and I will believe in Jesus. And that's what John wants us to do. He wants us to believe in Jesus. And today, what John is going to start to do is to reveal the signs or the miracles of Jesus, the miracles that Jesus performs. And each sign that Jesus performs is not to culminate in on on itself. It's not just to settle with itself, but each of the signs and miracles that Jesus performs points to something greater that he has come to do. Let me try to explain this to you. How many of you in this room have ever seen the movie Signs? Anyone? Some of you have, some of you haven't. Well, I'm going to ruin it for you right now, okay? The movie's over 10 years old. You should have seen it by now if you're going to see it, okay? But in this movie, you've got Mel Gibson who plays a character by the name of Graham Hess. Now, Graham is a former pastor who has left the ministry, has actually abandoned his faith in God because his wife died in a car accident and it took her life. One day, this guy wakes up, he walks into his backyard, he lives on a farm, and what he sees on his farm are all these crop circles. He sees all of these different signs, but those aren't the only signs that you're supposed to see in the movie. You see, as the movie goes on, you start to find out odd things about Grant's family. For instance, his daughter, Bo, for some reason decides she's going to leave full glasses of water all over the living room because they taste funny and they're old. You find out that his son, Morgan, has asthma. You find out that his brother-in-law, by the name of Merrill, who's moved into his house, is a like a, like a record-setting home run minor league baseball player who's got the, the record for the longest home run, but he also has the record for the most strikeouts. And as the movie goes on, they go back and they flash back to this scene where Graham is having the final conversation with his wife as she is passing away. And as that conversation is taking place, his wife looks at him and says, tell Graham to see. And then she says, tell Merrill to swing away. And as Graham is sitting there watching his wife die, hearing these things, he thinks everything that is taking place in his life is utterly pointless. He can't see any reason why his daughter leaves glasses of water all over the place. He can't see any reason why his son has asthma. He can't see any reason why Merrill is some great baseball player who's kind of washed out. And he has no idea why his wife is saying this to him. He just thinks they're just random misfires in her mind as she's passing away. Well, it gets really bad. Because Graham ends up discovering why there are crop circles in his crops. There are aliens. And so alien comes into Graham's house, picks up his son Morgan. And as Graham is standing there with this alien holding his son, all of a sudden he remembers his wife's words, see. He turns to his right and he sees Merrill. And who is Merrill? The baseball player, right? And what's above Merrill's head? A baseball bat. And all of a sudden, he remembers her words, swing away. Mel walks over. He grabs the bat. He approaches the alien. At that point, the alien sprays poison right onto Morgan's face, drops Morgan to the ground. And with that, Merrill 
hits the alien, knocking him into a shelf, spilling water. And as that water hits that alien, what happens? It burns the alien. And then all of a sudden, he remembers again, see, and they look around, and he sees the point of all the glasses of water. <laughs> They're all over the house. With that, Merrill takes out the alien. More, or Graham takes his son outside. He gives him a shot, and then he realizes, why does he have asthma? None of the poison went into his lungs. You see, throughout the movie, the point of the movie is not necessarily the big signs in the field, but it's rather all the little signs throughout that culminate in the end of the movie that each and every one of those signs, what do they do? They save his life. They save his family's life. With that, the movie ends, and I'm going to give you the ending. Graham walks out. He goes back to his church, and he starts to preach, and his faith in God is restored. You see, in the same way, the signs of Jesus in the book of John are not meant to just focus on the simple fact that Jesus was powerful. They're not just to focus on the simple fact that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he did great and marvelous things. Just like that movie, each and every one of the signs is to point us to belief and trust in Jesus. Why? Because each and every one of the signs point to something greater Jesus has come to do to bring you and me back to God. And that's why John writes in John chapter 2, verse 1, here's what he says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Think about this for a second. Jesus is at a wedding. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of you and me and everything we see, is at a wedding celebration. And Jesus doesn't just attend a wedding, and Jesus doesn't crash the wedding. He's no wedding crasher. What does the text tell us? That Jesus was what? Invited. Jesus was invited to this wedding. Many of us in this room are married. Many of us in this room plan to get married. But let me ask you a question. As you sit down to make your guest list, how many of you would even think about putting Jesus on the list? How many of you would ever want Jesus at your wedding? You see, this is a mind-blowing statement. And your answer to that question says a lot about how you view Jesus. So many of us in our culture tend to think of Jesus as nothing more than, I don't know, let's say Spock from Star Trek. We got any Trekkies in here today? We're talking a lot about movies. No Trekkies. We've got zero Trekkies. Okay, we got one. We got one Trekkie who's giving me the Spock symbol. Okay. <laughs> But who is Spock? He's nothing more than this emotionless, just kind of boring, monotone guy who walks around just spitting out random data. And some of us have this false idea and this false impression, that's who Jesus is. That all he was was just a data drop down here on this earth, walking around all monotone and boring, just spitting out random facts. But that's not who Jesus is at all. That's a false Jesus. You see, the Matthew, who wrote another biography of Jesus, tells us in his gospel more of who Jesus is. Listen to what he says in Matthew eleven nineteen. He says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, Matthew isn't saying Jesus is a drunk or a glutton. Rather, what he is saying is that Jesus came in the way many of us would not expect. He came eating. He came drinking, and he came befriending who? Tax collectors and sinners. People like you and like me. You see, Jesus, guys, was invited to parties. People really enjoyed being around Jesus. 
And I would argue that people should really enjoy being around Jesus' followers. I believe it was Gandhi who once said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your what? Christ. Now, I think what Gandhi was talking about there was the hypocrisy of Christians, that Christians should love God, love others, and they weren't doing that. And I absolutely agree that all Christians should love God and love others, but I also think Christians should be known for something else. And what is that? Being the life of the party. Having some joy. That's what I think Christians should be known for. You see, in verse 11, John tells us that this is the first of Jesus's what? His signs. And what does that mean? A sign is nothing more than, say, maybe like a movie preview. Many of us have gone to the movies and we've seen the previews. And what are those previews? Those are snapshots or short clips that point us to something so much greater to come. For instance, my son and I saw the preview for the new Avengers movie. I think it comes out on April 26th. And when we watched that, we were filled with anticipation. Why? Because he wants to know if Spider-Man's really dead. And some of you are like, well, I haven't seen the first one. I'm ruining all kinds of movies today. Okay? But, but, but think about it. He wants to know if Spider-Man is alive. It's to create anticipation. And in the same way, when we look at the miracles of Jesus, they are signs that are to create anticipation in you and me for something so much greater to come. You see, friends, the Bible begins with a wedding. Jesus performs his first miracle out of what? A wedding. And the Bible culminates, it finishes in a wedding. You see, it finishes with the wedding supper of the Lamb of God. His name is Jesus. And the bride of Jesus, which is the church, it's all those who trust in Jesus, are invited to that wedding to what? To celebrate with joy what Jesus has done to defeat Satan, to forgive our sins, and to raise us and resurrect us to glory. You see, I agree with Jeff Vanderstelt. He's a pastor up in Seattle. And he says that Christians should be some of the most joyous people in the world. Listen to what he says. He says, we ought to be known as the greatest party people on the planet. We ought to party like crazy because we actually have something to celebrate, the resurrection of Jesus. The question that John is going to be asking you and me here today is, is do you have joy? Do you have real joy? Because Jesus has come to bring joy. He goes on to talk about a preview, if you will, of what Jesus does at this wedding, a sign that points to something greater. Look at verse three. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now that's a big deal. If you're at a party and the wine runs out, that's a really, really big deal. And it was a really big deal in Jesus's day. You see, in Jesus's day, weddings weren't just one day like they are in our culture, right? I got married on July 14th, 2001. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. It's not in my notes. I'm just trying to remember, okay? And I remember it was one day and my friends were there. My family was there. We found out a couple weeks before our reception, our reception was canceled. We didn't know it. My mom just happened to be at the place and found out and we scrambled and got a reception together because if we didn't have a reception and we had all these friends and family, that would have been painful, right? That would have been shameful. But in this culture, a wedding wasn't just one day. It was seven days. Seven days of celebration, seven days of feasting, seven days of just joy. And you know what is absolutely awesome about weddings in the first century that I think we should bring back? Who was responsible for paying for them? The groom. And as a dad with two daughters, 
I think I'm going to look at my future son-in-law and just say, I'm a biblical man, pay up, right? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. We don't know if it was day four. We don't know what day it was. But all of a sudden, the whispers begin. You've got to imagine the scene. Picture a guy walking over to another guy. He puts his arm around him and he looks at him and he says, hey, have you been over to the wine bar lately? There's not much left. I mean, maybe a few ounces left in a jar. If the master of the feast took some water and diluted this, he might be able to stretch it out to day five. But get to day seven? Absolutely not. This is just a huge shameful thing to run out. And especially in Jesus's culture, which it was a high honor and shame culture, it would have been extremely shameful to run out. And it's actually been shown through historical evidence that a groom could be sued by the bridal party or by the bride's family for what? Bringing not only shame on himself, but also upon them. You talk about just messing up your wedding. I mean, there's no money dance at that wedding. Why? Because you're the one handing out the money to pay for emotional damages. You can't go on a honeymoon. Why? Because you've been sued. You've got to pay it. You imagine your anniversary from that point forward. It's not a celebration of joy you have and being married to your wife. It's your wife looking at you with scorn because you have brought shame upon the family. Eventually, whispers begin to circulate and they make their way to Jesus' mother, Mary. And we don't know if Mary had a role in this wedding. We don't know if she just wanted to try to cover the shame of the family. But she takes this problem to Jesus. With that, Mary looks at Jesus and she says they have no wine. Now, wine in the Bible wasn't just merely a drink in Jesus' day. Wine had great significance, symbolic meaning, if you will. You see, it was a sign of God's blessing and joy. When you look at Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15, we read this of God. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. You look in Isaiah 55, verse 1, we read this of God. He's talking to the people of the Israelite people, and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jewish rabbis were believed to essentially say this, without wine there is no joy. What are those rabbis saying in our common vernacular? They're basically saying this, without God, there is no joy in this life. One theologian by the name of Kent Hughes says you could almost paraphrase Mary as going up to Jesus and saying they have no joy. Why? Because the joy has run out. And here's what we've got to see. There is a point in which the exhilaration and joy of this life is going to run out. It's going to be found out empty. And what is sad is so many of us in this room and so many of us, including myself, in the city, are trying to find ultimate satisfaction in what? the things of this world. We're trying to find ultimate joy, if you will, in the things of this world. We think if I could just get that particular house in that particular neighborhood, then I'm good. I'm set, right? If we think if I could just get that particular job with that particular company, then I'll be fulfilled. If I can get that particular degree from that school, or if I could get that particular person to marry me, or just go out with me, then I will be ultimately fulfilled. But what you have to understand is the joys in this life are running out. They're not meant to ultimately satisfy you. 
I know as soon as I say this name, I'm going to tick some of you off. But the guy's name is Tom Brady. Oh, yeah, I just heard. Oh, Tom Brady just won his what? Sixth Super Bowl champion. But what many people don't realize is, just like you're seeing, after he won his third Super Bowl champion, what did Tom do? He interviewed with 60 Minutes. And I want to tell you what Tom said after winning his third Super Bowl. This is what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? There has got to be more than this. When asked what the answer was, he just laughed. And here's what he said. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. The man had won three Super Bowls. He now has six. And he still hasn't found what he's looking for. Why is that? It's because the things of this world are running out. You see, to have no wine is a sign of no joy. It's equivalent to saying life without God, and life without God is only left with shame. With that, Jesus responds to his mother, and the way he responds to his mother is a little bit interesting. I know as soon as Chris read it, some of you are like, ooh, that sounds harsh. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I don't know about you, but in the household I grew up in, if I would have said woman, it would have meant with the slap in the face or my dad put me on the floor, right? I mean, this sounds so offensive in our culture, but in Jesus' day, it wasn't necessarily that offensive. You see, what Jesus is saying here would be the equivalent of him saying something like, ma'am, it is not your place to be calling on my power. You see, Jesus talks to his mom two times in the Gospel of John, both times addressing her in the same way. And at the, closer to the end of the Gospel of John, we read in John 19, Jesus says this, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, that is John who wrote this Gospel, whom he loved standing nearby, that's kind of funny, John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, like he didn't love the other ones, but anyway... So he says, the mother and disciple whom Jesus loves standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her to his own home. That's amazing to me. When I read that this week, it actually made me tear up and I'm not quite that emotional. Think about this. Here is Jesus hanging on the cross in extreme agony. And he takes a moment while he's hanging there on the cross to die for your sin and my sin, to bring us back to God. He takes a moment there to care for his mom. You see, more than likely, Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, was dead. So Mary was completely reliant upon Jesus for provision and for help. And as he's about to leave this earth, he's not only paying for her eternal provision, if you will, but he also takes time to care about her earthly provision. And he looks at the disciple John and he says, I want you to adopt my mom and I want you to care for her. You see, the, woman does, the term woman doesn't sound so hateful now, does it? What is Jesus doing by using this term woman? I think what Jesus is doing is creating some polite distance between himself and his mom. When we get into chapter 7, we're going to see that Jesus has to create some distance between himself and and his brothers. You see, Jesus, guys, has not come to do his mother's will. He has not come to do his brother's will. 
He hasn't even come to do his will. But what does he say throughout the entire book of the John? He says he has come to do what? His father's will and his father's will alone. How do we know this? Because he says to her, my hour has not yet come. And if you sit there and you go, what's he talking about his hour? You're getting to what John wants you to focus upon. You see, that word hour is used 26 times in this book. And each and every time it is used, it's pointing to something that Jesus came to do. He's relentless about it. And what does it point to? It points to the fact that Jesus has come to live, to die for sin, and to rise again. And it's not until chapter 12 we read, Jesus says, my hour has now come. And the whole entire book of John just changes to the cross. You see, the hour is not just a random hour. It's an hour in which he would die for your sin and my sin to bring us back to God. And what Jesus is declaring here is that everyone, including his mothers and brother, is to approach him as Savior and Lord. You see, Mary is not someone you and I are to worship. She is not someone we're to venerate, if you will. Respect her? Sure. Honor her? Sure. But what you and I have to understand, this was especially true for me growing up in the heritage I came through, is I needed to see her as nothing, just like me, that she was a sinner, what? In need of God's saving grace. What Mary is presuming upon is her horizontal relationship as mother and son. And what Jesus is trying to point her to is his divine relationship as the savior of the world, the son of God who has come into this world to rescue people, including her. I love what D.A. Carson says here. He's so helpful when he writes this. He says this, But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinate to his divine mission. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her, but she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. She brought him into the world, and he dies leaving this world to bring her to someone so much greater, and that is to God. And she had to see that. Mary, however, shakes off this gentle rebuke and there's something with inside of Jesus that leads her to believe that he's gonna respond. And Jesus does respond, but I don't think he responds just simply out of obedience to his mom. I think the reason Jesus responds is because the sign he's about to perform is to point to something so much greater that he's come to do for you and me and for her. And so listen to what it says in verse six. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I can only imagine what must have been going through the servants' minds here. They gather around Jesus waiting for instructions. They're aware that there's a shortage of wine and they're aware of the public shame this could have brought upon the groom as well as the bride. They knew the wine was running out. But I imagine they never anticipated that Jesus would solve the problem like this. You see, at the entrance of the wedding, there would have been a six stone jars. 
each, uh, cumulatively, each holding about 120 to 180 gallons of water. And what we know from the Old Testament, these are purification jars. They're made of stone. And what people would do in the Old Testament is they would go to these jars and they would wash themselves and they would clean themselves externally because they knew they were unclean, both externally as well as internally. But the only means of cleaning that these jars could do was just purely external. The purpose of these jars is to provide external cleaning. They're for bathing, but check this out. They're never for drinking. I mean, this is so odd. It's almost gross, if you will. Jesus says, fill them up. And we don't know if there was some residual water left in the bottom of that. But I was kind of talking to my wife about this, and I said, I think that'd be kind of like going to the Starbucks bathroom, filling up the sink, and putting a straw in <laughs> And she was like, ooh, that's gross. And I was like, okay, that connected. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just not something you would think of going to to take a drink of. This is for cleaning. That's what this is for. The servants, however, they just trust in Jesus. They fill up the jars. And that is a huge sign of discipleship. Jesus says we do, right? And so they don't ask questions. They just fill up the jars. And they take it to the master of the feast who's in charge of the distribution of wine. And listen what happens. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And what did his disciples do? They believed in him. Why did John write this book? So that you and I would believe in Jesus. That's what he's pointing us to. You see, the servants know what Jesus did, but the master of the feast doesn't. And somewhere along the way, from the trip from the basins, the jars, or whatever, to the master, this wine miraculously changed from water into what? Wine. The master of feast immediately calls for the groom. He pulls him to the side. I almost envision him again, putting his arm around this guy, going, man, you got me. Here I am stressing out, trying to figure out how am I going to extend this wine? But you've been holding out. You've got wine, but you don't just have any wine. You have saved the best stuff for last. Who does that? You are the man. You see, oftentimes in these weddings, what would they do? They would use the best wine up front during the first few days. And then as taste buds dulled, they would start to bring out the cheaper stuff. You know, the two buck chuck or the box wine or whatever it is that's cheap. And they would bring this out. And who is responsible for the provision? The groom. The groom, right? And I almost imagine as the master of feast got his arm around him, the groom's just got this dumbfounded look on his face. Because what did he do? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing. He was given credit for something he didn't contribute to at all. It was all of Jesus. So what's this sign all about? Why in the world would Jesus make the first sign water into wine? I mean, if you think about this sign in comparison to other things we're going to see Jesus do, like healing the sick and raising the dead, this seems kind of like, you know, bottom shelf, weak stuff. 
Over this past week, I was reading so much on this, just trying to figure out, what do people think this is about? And you wouldn't believe the things that I've read. Some people would say, hey, this whole thing is about Jesus being pro-marriage. Jesus goes to a wedding. He's for weddings. Weddings are good. That's what it's about. And though I think Jesus is pro-marriage, he went to one, I don't necessarily think that's what John is trying to point us to. Other people would come up and they would basically write, well, here's what Jesus is doing. He's declaring his view of alcohol. I'm like, really? And they're like, think about it. These people got really excited. I mean, there was 180 gallons, not of Welch's grape juice. Unless you're three, you get excited about that. They're excited about wine. And they're like, look at this. This is what God is saying. He is pro-wine. And here's what you got to understand. The Bible says wine is for our enjoyment. It's for celebration. You look at Deuteronomy 24. God tells the nation of Israel to celebrate with drink. But don't misunderstand. At no point in this text is drunkenness condoned. At no point in this text are you and I supposed to lose control and to put our hope in a drink rather than a savior. You've got to understand, though the Bible says that wine is for enjoyment and celebration, you must also understand it is governed that all drink, all food, all of life, according to 1 Corinthians 10, is to be done for what? The glory of God and I would say, within moderation. You see, the Bible nowhere says you and I have license to get drunk or even tipsy or even buzzed. Ephesians 5.18 says it like this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. For some of you, like many people I know, people that I'm related to, it's probably wise that you do not touch wine until the new life. See, Brennan Manning, who's an old theologian, struggled with alcoholism during his earthly life. And here's what he wrote. He said, Through no merit of mine, I have been given a bona fide invitation to drink new wine forever in the kingdom of God. That's good news, right? Some of you are like, amen. But is that what John's talking about? No. He's not talking about that. I don't even think John is necessarily talking about covering the shame in this earthly life of this marital couple. Some people are saying, well, here's what John's all about. He's all about people over ritual. And I think Jesus would choose people over ritual a hundred times out of a hundred times. But I don't think that's what this is about. So what's it about? I think the answer is found in the jars. What were these jars used for? External cleansing. Cleaning oneself up so that they could come before God. And I think the number here is absolutely significant because it's a number that represents incompletion. A complete number is seven, but six is not a complete number. And as these people would walk into this wedding ceremony, they would see these jars, which was a visual reminder of what? You're unclean. And so what would they do? They would wash. They would wash. I imagine even the utensils of the wedding were washed in these jars, in these, these stone jars why? Because they're unclean. Every single person going to that wedding had a problem. They were unclean. They could not be go before a holy God. And so what would they do? They would wash. And I believe what Jesus is doing here by filling these jars that were meant for cleansing with new wine is to show this. 
that the Old Testament way of purification is insufficient. It was never meant to be final. You and I were never meant to work real hard, cleaning ourselves up, doing all these rituals and things as a way to get to God. I think they were pointing to something greater that would come. And who is that? His name is Jesus. You see, Jesus has come to do so much greater than the jars of the old religion. You and I cannot be made right with God. We cannot be approved of in God's sight through external means of purification. I have friends, I have family members who have actually told me, once I quit drinking, I'll go to church. If I just clean myself up, then I'll be made right with God and I'll start going. But that's not good news. You see, Jesus has not come to clean you up from the outside in. He has come to clean you up from the inside out. One of the metaphors used throughout the Bible is fishing. And one of the last, I've never seen a fisherman try to clean a fish before he caught it. I've never seen that. And some of you, you come in here to church and you do all these ritual acts, but you're doing them not out of the glory of God and the enjoyment of God, but you're doing it as a means of trying to clean yourself up. You believe that God cleaned you before he can use you. And I will tell you this. Here's, listen to me clearly. First he finds you, and then he cleans you. You've got to see that. You see, 1 John 1.7, John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote this letter. And listen to what he says. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from what? All sin. And just like you heard John say here, I know a little bit of Greek. What does all mean in the Greek? Man, you guys are great. You're Greek studs. I had to spend so much time parsing the word parse, pos because that's what it means. I had to look at it in all these forms. But do you know what it means in all the forms? All. He's come to cleanse us from what? Not some sin, not just partial sin, all sin. And just like that groom standing there with a dumb look on his face, getting credit for something he didn't do, Jesus has come to cleanse you without a scrap of your assistance. You see, the power of Jesus to transform the water into wine is amazing. But what is even greater is the ability to transform rebellious sinners into a saint. And the question you've got to ask yourself as you read this story is this. Have I trusted in Jesus? Have I been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb? Am I looking forward to it? Do, does your life look like it has any wine in it? And you know what I mean by that. Does it have any joy? You see, Jesus removes shame. He makes unclean people clean before God. And just like Jeff Vanderselt said, I believe that should make us the most joyous people in the entire world. Because here's what you and I understand. That nothing in this life that befalls us is ultimately determinative. Why? Because we got that wedding to look forward to in Revelation 19. Therefore, I can live this life with joy 
with happiness, real happiness, with a smile on my face because I know I've been invited to the wedding. Have you been invited to the wedding? Have you trusted in Jesus? And if not, why not today? He will be the ultimate satisfaction of your heart. It's what he's come to do.